Welcome to Apparently, the podcast for absolutely average parents. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Ann and I have been friends for a very long time. We met right after college. Yeah, in our first jobs as radio producers. We spent our 20s as wing women for each other, and it didn't work out very well. But then it did. And we found the right guys and stood up in each other's weddings. And then we had babies within weeks of each other. So we went from producers to reproducers. We make it look easy. Which brings us to this podcast. We want to discuss topics that interest us and you and provide some knowledge to other average parents. We're average, not experts. So we'll tackle these topics with people who know what they're doing. Yeah, we'll get the experts. And I fully expect to embarrass myself along the way. Yeah, after season one, I'm pretty sure we already have. (laughs) So welcome to Apparently. We make it look easy. We make it look good. When everybody sees it, they stop and take a look. Apparently, the most selective colleges aren't necessarily the best ones. Mm. Yeah, Um, this is going to be awkward for me pretty soon. (laughs) Um, uh, A recent white paper entitled A Fit Over Rankings, Why College Engagement Matters More Than Selectivity, debunks the traditional college ranking systems and reveals what really matters for students. It was released by Challenge Success, a nonprofit affiliated with the Stanford Graduate School of Education. So I'm going to bet that Aunt Becky is really kicking herself right now. (laughs) We should probably explain that a little bit. You know, in the news recently, the scandal surrounding the college admissions Mm -hmm. um, with Hollywood types that are all being, you know, named. uh, Was it Lori Loughlin and Felicity Huffman paying that big money to get their kids into some elite school? Yep. Kind of shows that there's probably... uh, some privilege and lack of scruples and criminal activity yeah involved <laughs> with their kids going to those schools yeah but it but in this as i've been investigating it and it comes out with this this white paper that the other mistake these women and other people have made is that they're putting their college rankings over the fit for their kids and clearly if they're they're sending their kids to usc to be on the rowing team it's not a good fit yeah yeah and it sounds like that those two kids didn't even want to be there anyway yeah yeah the stories that came out later so what what should parents be looking for well i think we should ask we're going straight to an expert i'm just gonna let you know okay um okay so we're not quite here yet you know so we gotta take notes right now yes we are so paul franz is a research associate uh with challenge success uh he co-authored this white paper i was just talking about and he also has served as a challenge success school coach since 2013 and he he taught middle school english too oh cool okay um paul let's start with welcome to the show Thank you. Uh, let's start with the mission of Challenge Success. Now, you believe our society has become too focused on grades and test scores and performance, right? Holla! Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think Tracy yeah. Tracy uh, is on your side right there. <laughs> Why is it bad? Yeah, I mean, well, so Challenge Success partners with schools, families, and communities to embrace a broad definition of success and to implement research-based strategies that promote student well-being and engagement with learning. And we think that that's really important and that basically the over-reliance on test, test scores and kind of traditional metrics of, of success and, um, you know, like kind of this idea of winning, this zero-sum game is problematic because it, it kind of shuts out you know, a lot of pathways that kids and, and, and adults can take to, you know, to having help happy, healthy and successful lives. But, you know, the only way to 
measure whether or not someone's successful is not just, you know, their GPA and where they go to college and how much money they make. There's a lot more to, to life than that. There's, you know, a lot to be said for your engagement in what you do and um, the impact that you make on the world and the, you know, how much joy you, you take in the, in the things that you do, your engagement with your family, things like that. And, you know, we think that in at the education space, especially a lot of kids are getting a message that, you know, it's, it's great that matter. And it's, and, and that's just way too narrow of a definition. Agree. So the idea of college rankings uh, pretty much goes against your mission. And I remember uh, reading the annual Best Colleges edition of U.S. News and World Report um, like it was a Bible. I remember that. And um, and because so, you know, I'm uh, confession here. I went to Yale. So I'm one of the, <laughs> one of the people who uh, hook, line, sinker. Yeah. Also, my parents did not pay to get me in. Um, but I remember like being so excited when Yale was at the top. Like it was really important to sure. me to have to be number one. And I remember Yale and Harvard would go back and forth. This is back when Yale and Harvard were still good. Um, but we would like put t-shirts, you know, like we're number one. Harvard sucks. And it was kind of really. Dirty. Yeah, I'm not kidding. Um, the students wore those shirts. Yes. Like, and the colleges sold them? Yes. Oh my god. <laughs> the students the students made them. You of I. You of <laughs> There was none of that going on. Yeah. So, but let's look at these college rankings and the metrics because you know, I in reading your paper, um I realized just how uh maybe inaccurate the metrics are. Uh, what what metrics does US News and World Report use? Yeah, so this I mean this is a really important point about kind of how you know this this notion of I think your experience of, of thinking of the rankings as being kind of like gospel in some way is a really common perception, and I think that the way they just present them it reinforces that perception. But when you actually dive in and look at how they calculate these rankings, they are <clears throat> giving a sense of kind of precision that is uh, greatly over exaggerated. So some of the biggest things in the rankings are. Um, and how they calculate the rankings are graduation rate and also this kind of expected graduate projected graduation rate. So the combination of graduation and projected graduation rate is like 23 and a half percent of the overall ranking. Um, and these graduation rates like, yeah, they're useful, but there's a, been a lot of research that suggests that how you, you know, really graduation rates have a lot more to do with the kinds of students that are getting into the school as opposed to the things that the school is doing to ensure that people graduate. So it's not really a measure of the quality of the educational programs or anything at the school. It's more a measure of uh, effectively the SES of incoming students. What's the, the what of incoming um, students? SES? SES, or yeah, so social, socioeconomic status. So ah. basically, a lot of these more elite schools enroll more wealthy students, and more wealthy students tend to graduate at higher rates just because of, you know, they have more resources, and it's a lot easier to fund going to these elite schools and so on and so forth. So um, there's it's, it's less about what the institution, once you control for that as a background, once you control for incoming SES and, and other background characteristics, students, um, there's basically selectivity has no relationship with graduation rates once you do that kind of controlling. So graduation rate is really not a function of what the school does um, in order to you know, help students get across the finish line. It's more about what students bring in. And that's going to be true in other, a lot of other areas as well. Okay, what about the reputation among peers? This is a ridiculous measure, yeah. rubric. It's yeah. stupid. Yeah. Yeah, so the other other two really big areas of this reputation among or this reputation among peers and reputation among guidance counselors, which um, is a bit of a black box. We don't know a lot about you know what that data actually ends up looking like. They do tell us how they calculate it or how they you know solicit this these, these kind of reputation surveys among other schools, but um, we've kind of 
spoken with people that we know in this space, and most people don't fill out the survey that we know. Um, so we're not even sure who's really filling it out and sending it to them. But basically, it's this opportunity for them to um, reinforce the existing kind of reputations. So if you say, like, you know, they send out this reputation survey, um, and they just ask people, like, to, to more or less give uh, scores to the different schools that, that exist out there. Um, and, you know, if you're a, a guidance counselor or an admissions person at Yale, for example, odds are you're actually not all that in touch with what's going on at Montana State and, and the University of Illinois and the University of Texas. And I mean, you're not going to be up on all of the little things that are going on at the school. So you're just going to kind of score them based on what you already, you know, perceive about their, their prestige. It's so totally subjective. Yeah, exactly. Totally subjective. It ends up being kind of a self-reinforcing metric. Right. Ah, so, all right. Now, this one I kind of get, uh, expenditures per student. Mm-hmm. So that, that makes yeah. sense, right? Yeah, that does make sense. And I think that, I mean, that's, it, I think it's worth noting here that not everything that the U.S. News and World Report is measuring is necessarily a bad thing. That, sure. You know, like even graduation rate, it's not a bad thing to have a, a high graduation rate at a school and expenditures per student is definitely something that is, you know, is good to have as well. I think the, um, the U.S. News and Report is a, it's a little bit of a blunt instrument still on the expenditures per student, though, because it's not getting you know, that much into like, it's kind of working as a proxy for quality of instruction and quality of educational programs. But it's not actually looking at the quality, it's just looking at how much money they spend on it. And, you know, we all know you can spend a lot of money on something and not have a high quality product, and vice versa, you can spend less money and have a high quality product. So, you know, like there, it's nice, because this is an easy thing to measure, but it's not necessarily actually reflective of the quality of the, the services. Well, and I think I read in the paper or somewhere else that, you know, when they talk about expenditures, they might be talking about infrastructure, Structure or gardening or uh, uh, like maintenance, aesthetic? right? Yeah, right. It's, I mean, it's, it's all about how much money is spent, but it's not necessarily money spent in the classroom. Absolutely, and research is one of the big areas there. Where um, I mean, of course, one of the things that is valuable about universities in, in our higher ed system is research. Um, but it, you know, research funding doesn't necessarily, in fact, it just doesn't relate to undergraduate education. Um, in a lot, in most cases, you know, when you're doing, you're spending more money on your research department, it probably means you're spending less money on teaching. Right. So, so I'm looking at all the the rubrics that uh, of the categories that go into that that ranking, and one of them was the SAT scores, and that the average across all the students um, for ACT or SAT uh, goes into the equation. H- how it's not even that big of a, a a number towards the end ranking. So it's, it's, it's worth 8%. It's only right? 8%. Mm-hmm. How does the SAT score of the student have anything to do with whether the un- university is any good? Because that's the, the well, yeah, score is before they get into the university. Exactly. And that's a really good point because the, the SAT score is in the same category as the, you know, whether or not students are in the top 10% of, of their class in high school. Um, and then also with the acceptance rate. I mean, all of those are really measures of inputs, not of outputs. And that's kind of one of the big critiques, I'd say, of the rankings is that they, they're measuring more inputs than outputs, and they're measuring things that are easy to measure as opposed to things that are necessarily the most important to measure. And SAT scores are a great example. It's like you're not measuring how much students learn while they're there. You're measuring basically how much they've already learned. Um, and SAT scores are another thing that has a really high correlation 
um, in the research with socioeconomic status. Um, so you're really just measuring in a sense, especially on the aggregate, obviously within, you know, within any community, there's going to be a lot of variation. You have students who are from well-off backgrounds who do worse on the SAT and, and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, on the aggregate, you're essentially measuring in a lot of ways when you're measuring the SAT score, how wealthy the students who are coming into your school are. Yeah. Uh, shocking. What about the average class size? This is something that is actually an output, in my opinion. It's something that the the college or university can control. It's widely known that a, the smaller a class size, the the better the education and instruction is, rather than sitting in, like I remember at U of I, I sat in Fullinger Auditorium with 500 other kids. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of one-on-one there. Why, why, yeah, is that, why doesn't that weigh more? That seems like a big deal. Yeah, so this is and this is a really interesting one. So this is this is one that I think is um, rightfully really important to know, um, and is actually an, an example of a of yeah exactly. I wouldn't necessarily fully say it's an output, um, but it's very highly related to learning, right? We know that smaller classes are better. There's been plenty of research in um, you know a variety of levels of education that show that that we do want smaller classes. The biggest problem to me with the way that they do the class size in the in the U.S. News and World Report is that they're looking primarily at you know, the average across the entire school. But what that doesn't tell you is the proportion of students who are in small classes. And in the white paper, we kind of give this example. And this comes from um, Chambliss and Takis. They have uh, a book about college. Um, and and they talk about this kind of similar example where, well, what if, what if you were at a school where, you know, you have 20 classes and 200 students and 19 of those classes have like two students each? Right. Like really small. This is intentionally a hyperbolic situation. This isn't a a real thing. But imagine you had 19 classes with two students each. And then that last class has all of the rest of the students. Now, your average class size is going to be pretty small at that school. But only 18 students in the entire school are actually in a small class. So we're measuring average class size because it's easier to calculate. But we're not actually calculating how many of the students at the school are in small classes. And in some of these schools, they kind of game the system where, you know, they make a lot of really small classes, like three, four, five student classes, especially at the higher undergraduate levels for juniors and seniors. Mm-hmm. And then that drives their overall average class size down to, you know, 15, 16 students. But then if you're a freshman, all of your classes have 40 plus kids in them. Right. And I got to tell you, like I was in a number of seminars that were eight, nine kids so I, you know, I'm pretty sure that that was gaming some kind of system. You you had classes that small? Yeah. Oh, I did. I did not. <laughs> uh, so, Paul, one of the, so uh, a number of these measures are about faculty. You've got the faculty compensation. Mm-hmm. You've got the faculty with terminal degrees, which means that they have. Let, let's say if you can get a PhD, that means the faculty member has got the PhD. And then you have the full time faculty ratio. Now, I used to teach at Northwestern, Paul, so I know mm-hmm. that all of these numbers are misleading because having full time. <laughs> Time faculty um, with tenure uh, doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting the best teaching. Sorry, my old friends, but uh, tell us about the faculty and and the compensation part too. Yeah, so this is a really um, also kind of nuanced uh, part of these rankings, and overall, it adds up to a fairly small portion. It's around, I guess, it's probably around what fifteen percent once you add all of these faculty things together. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's yeah exactly. There there's not. Um, it's not entirely clear that, yeah, tenured faculty are going to be doing um, more. Te- in fact, often tenured faculty do less teaching in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, ca- compensation is going to um, 
also not necessarily reflect the quality of instruction um, in a lot of cases. You know, the more elite schools are basically just going to be able to pay their faculty more, which means that they're bringing in, um, I'm using air quotes that you can't see, higher quality faculty, but really higher quality means for those elite schools means more, you know, basically more prestigious research, research that's getting cited by more people. It doesn't mean that they're better teachers. It doesn't mean that they're going to be excited about working with undergraduates. And, you know, in many, in, in many graduate schools, um, you know, faculty that do really advanced research, faculty don't even interface with undergraduates at all. They Their undergraduate classes are taught by graduate students or by TAs. And so that's, you know, this faculty, the faculty measures are, I, I'd say they are important if you're thinking about the institution as a whole, if you're thinking about graduate school also, if you're thinking about the quality of research that gets done. And I mean, I think one problem that higher ed has right now is this kind of um, the destruction of the of the full-time faculty, right? In, increasingly, it's adjuncts and part-time employees, and that's problematic in other ways. But as a measure of under the quality of undergraduate instruction, it's just not a very direct line between, you know, faculty compensation or the, you know, number of faculty with terminal degrees. Often the best teaching faculty are faculty who have more experience teaching or who have more interest in teaching, and sometimes they don't have PhDs or MDs or some other top-level degree. So I'm looking at this list also, and why does alumni giving count? What, like, <laughs> Does the alumni giving rate metric encourage colleges to admit students who are more likely to donate later when they graduate? So like, what, Is that another measure of how rich they are? Yeah, so I would say um, it, is a, it is a measure of how wealthy the student body is in a lot of ways, and I, I, it's the... Um, it does definitely incentivize I, the, this kind of in, admitting students who are more likely to be able to donate in the future. Um, you know, the, the logic, I think, that that um, the rankings agencies that use alumni giving rate would, would, would stand by as like, oh, well, we want to, you know, we, we're looking at the percentage of students that, that donate, not the amount that they donate. And we really... You know, we think that higher is better because it implies that graduates valued their time at the college enough to donate. And, you know, therefore, it's kind of a reflection of how much students like the school. And you think, well, why don't you just actually have, a, you know, like ask the students whether they value their time instead of measuring by, by this, you know, weird thing that's also conflated with how much money they have and whether they're able to give. But, um, you know, it is that's like kind of the logic is that it's, it's trying to capture that. But I think exactly it's, it's not a, it's not a direct line. It's like it's easier to calculate, though. It's easy to measure. And that really is a kind of the as you go through these one by one like for most of the things they're trying to they're trying to get at something that is important uh, but they're using the thing that's the easiest thing, data to collect as opposed to the data that would most reveal the you know the thing they're trying to measure well that actually brings me to this question because I'm, I'm looking at all these metrics and rubrics what what measures of quality are missing like what what things are kind of not able to easily quantify or qualify yeah. So, I mean, the quality of the experience, I think, is a really is a really good example. Like how much did students enjoy their time? How much did they feel like they got out of it? Um, learning gains is another one. And that's notoriously hard to measure. But, um, you know, whether or not students actually learned things while they were in, in college, and that can be measured in a variety of ways. Like, did they learn basic skills? Did they learn critical thinking? Did they learn subject specific skills? Did they learn job skills? Um, did they learn social skills? Um, and there's been research that has tried to measure all of these different areas of learning, but you know, the, it's notably absent from the U.S. News and Report, World Report in particular, is there's not a single thing in their list that is a measurement of learning at all. Um, so that's a really good example. Um, Hello. Long-term, you know, jobs. Yeah, exactly. Job satisfaction, even like long-term, you know, more easier to measure outcomes like 
long-term income or long-term um, job placement is not in the U.S. News and World Report. And there could even be issues. I think there's some issues with using that as a as a metric also, but they don't even use that as a metric, um, which would be a output more than an input. But again, they mainly focus on inputs. Yeah. Um, like, and, you know, what is happening in. Like student happiness, you mentioned that that's a big deal. Like you could go to a prestigious school and just be a miserable human being when you, when you're, gra- when you graduate, whereas you could go to some tiny place that nobody knows about and you're happy as a Clam. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Paul, you mentioned some of the stuff I was just going to ask you about with, you know, um, the the relationship between college selectivity and student outcomes. We're, t- we're talking about what the parents would value. So, like, the, the actual learning, the eventual job satisfaction or general well-being, um, financial success long-term, I guess. Those aren't being measured right now. But um, how – what does correlate with actual student learning? Yeah, so the main correlates with actual student learning, well, learning in particular, this is, <laughs> it's so funny because it's like one of these classic examples of like, we, we can do a lot of research and then the thing that we find, you're like, oh yeah, of course. Um, the thing that correlates most with student learning is uh, is time spent studying and, and attending class. Duh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so believe it or not, that's how you, you know, if you want to get a lot out of college from a learning perspective, um, you know, the thing you should do is you should go to class and you should do your homework and you should do your reading and you should study. Yeah. <laughs> Don't party all night. Go to class. Do your homework. Study. Yeah. It, that just It's like an obvious thing, that, <laughs> but <laughs> it seems well, so obvious a, to yeah, me. There, there's a, um, a really, sometimes in some circles, somewhat controversial for some of the work that they, and some of the arguments that they make, but um, Aram and Roska published this book, uh, Academically Adrift, which talks about um, kind of the broadly across colleges, some issues around student engagement, which is actually in some ways reflective of some of the work we've done with Challenge Success at the high school level of, you know, students are having some engagement problems and schools aren't necessarily meeting kids where they, where the kids are in terms of getting them excited about their learning. Uh, but it's in that, you know, they're one of their big takeaways from all of their, their work looking across, you know, a range of different types of schools of all kinds of selectivity ranging from community colleges to the most elite schools in the country is that, yeah, the, the biggest thing, if, if learning is your goal, then yeah, studying is the way to, the way to get there. Right. So what about eventual job satisfaction or generally like just being happy, general well-being? How can we measure yeah, that? So and, is, and, and, and are selective schools more likely to deliver that? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I, the, you know, that's a harder thing to measure in a lot of ways. Even learning has, there's some challenges in measuring, but, um, you know, the measuring kind of satisfaction and thriving, one of the studies that we found that we found, um, found the most useful was uh, the study done by Gallup Purdue. Um, and basically they, um, they studied, a, they have this engagement index that they use in a variety of their surveys and studies. Um, and they, they applied that, that index to, um, a, a range of students. It was around 30,000 students, some of which were associate degree holders, most of which were bachelor's degree holders from a range of different types of schools. And they, um, they applied that, that engagement index in their lives, which include things like job satisfaction, general well-being, um, basically how they're doing in their lives um, and looked back at the things that they did while they were in college and to, to try to see if there was any correlation between what people did in college and then how they feel later on. Okay. And what they found, what they found was the things that were most predictive of, of long-term kind of satisfaction with your job and, and just thriving in general in your life was things like um, making relationships with professors that, uh, that went beyond just a single semester, extracurricular 
projects that were longer term, just being engaged in the campus community more broadly. Um, so it wasn't the selectivity of the school. They found no relationship between the selectivity and long-term satisfaction. And in fact, um, one of my favorite little tidbits is there is at least one study that has found a negative correlation between selectivity and job satisfaction, specifically on the measure of um, feeling like you're paid the right amount, that basically students who go to more selective schools are more likely to feel like they're underpaid. Um, not to actually be underpaid, but to feel like they're underpaid. Because they're um, entitled. They, they're entitled and they feel like they, they paid for a, a certain degree. Hey, man, you said it. <laughs> yeah, because they, basically because they, yeah, they, they expect, their expectation is that, hey, I went to, you know, this elite school, so therefore I should be making, you know, more money than I'm making, even though, you know, we know that it's not the school that is as predictive as things like, you know, what you do. Some of the things that Gallup Purdue talked about are, are good examples of, you know, finding mentorships, finding campus community, engaging in extracurriculars, and also what you major in has a huge role in how much money you make. Sure. Um, so like, you know, those kinds of, those kinds of things like can, can skew your perspective. You may think that, you know, I, well, I'm an English major from an elite school and it's like, well, you're an English major. So, <laughs> that not, kind of trumps the elite school in terms of the job market. I went into social work and I'm not making any money. I wonder why. By the way, I'm also an English major. So thanks, Paul. <laughs> Appreciate that. Um, but I, I, I'm a liberal arts major. So. Okay. Um, and mean, meanwhile, I want to throw uh, throw a little um, a shout out to Tracy's sister, Sarah, who uh, went to Illinois State University and is happier in her job than anyone I know. And she's making a lot more money than we are. <laughs> so... Um, all right. But it does seem like the selective colleges would set up graduates for higher paying jobs. And um, that just intuitively, I would think that you'd, you'd come out with a degree that and then people would want to pay you for that. But is, is that not true? So, yeah, this is a complicated one because uh, and this is where we uh, have gotten some pushback on the white paper. And I think it's uh, I think it's because it's really hard to tease out this difference between value added and just the like just the outcome. So it is the case that in general, students who go to these more elite schools do end up with higher paying jobs. That's just true. Um, and there's been a lot of research that shows that, you know, like students from Harvard on average have, and no, like this gets overblown. I think we think of it as, as a difference in like of, um, of kind instead of a difference of degree. Um, you know, we, we over-exaggerate the amount that they get paid more, but students do tend to get paid more when they go to these elite schools afterwards. But what a, the research has tried to do is tease out, is that because of the college? So this kind of value-added approach of like, well, what if we actually look at the background characteristics again of the students who are incoming to those schools? What if we try to measure their incoming, especially their incoming networks and SES, if we try to account for their incoming, um, you know, ambition and things like that? And once you account for background characteristics, the school itself doesn't make a difference. Um, and Kruger and Dale in particular had this great study um, where they looked at students who had gone to and gotten into similar schools, um, similar schools in terms of selectivity. Some of them had gone to the elite schools and then some of them had gone to less elite schools, and including some that were fairly non-selective. Um, and the result was that for, the, for those students who had applied to, not even sometimes gotten into this, applied to the same set of schools, um, displaying kind of the same kind of ambition and same kind of perspective, um, their long-term outcomes were the same as each other. That it wasn't the, you know, where, wherever they went to school, it wasn't where they went to school, it was kind of what they brought as a student to whatever school they went. So even if they had got in, you know, even if they hadn't gone to the Harvard that they got into and instead they went to, you know, a local, local um, campus of a state school, their long-term outcomes were the same financially. So the point of that study is that, you know, it's, it's the value, the value added of these elite colleges is, is vanishingly small. Um, and 
possibly even nothing once you really take into account the student, the student, what the student does. The students who go there are more likely to be students who work hard or have success, and, and therefore the, the colleges can't claim that. Yeah, I think that's some of it. I think it's also, I don't want to say that um, students who go to less elite schools are also are more like, are less likely to work hard, because I don't think it's, uh, I don't think it's quite that cut and dry. I think sure. it's uh, often that those elite schools are um, one way I, I sometimes put it is they're very good at finding students who already have um, a lot of resources. Um, and that could be their, their hard work, but it could also just be that they, you know, they come from a family that has a lot of network already. Um, so, you know, we'll, we often hear like, well, the reason I want to go to Harvard is so that I can tap into that network and be connected with other people who went to that elite school. Um, and the reality is the vast majority of students who are going there already have that network before they even come. And in fact, that's part of why you're tapping into it is because students are already coming with the network in the first place. Well, but no, um, wait a minute. So, Paul, we talked about this as we were, as we were discussing um, our, our different backgrounds. And I said that I think the greatest value of going to Yale is the network I made. And I did not come with a network. Like, I, I came straight from, you know, yeah, you're a farm middle girl. America. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I that has opened doors for me. And I think that's probably the only thing that has really made a huge difference for me. Yeah. So this is, this is a really good point. And I think it is, some of the research has suggested, especially if you're first generation or traditionally underserved, um, that network effect can exist for you for sure. When you go to those more elite schools, the impact of it is a lot smaller than I think we like to think. Um, it's because partially because it's really hard to measure, you know, the, the alternative, like what would have happened if you hadn't gone to Yale? Like, would you have gone to, a different school that was maybe slightly less elite, but you still would have been tapped into a pretty robust network. I think we tend to under-exaggerate the degree to which those networks exist and those opportunities exist across the spectrum of schools. That um, you, you know, the, the the network that exists at Yale is sure is a very elite, you know, the kind of traditional elite network on the East Coast. But you know, the University of um, like you name it, Indiana has also has its own networking opportunities that are present at that school. And I think we over-exaggerate the degree to which there's a difference between what kinds of networks you can plug into, especially if, to go back to the, the Gallup-Purdue stuff, especially if you are tapping into faculty as a mentor and engaging in multi-semester you know multi -semester extracurricular activities and just being involved in the campus community, you're going to find people who are going to help you get jobs, um, you know, no matter where you go. All right, so you're talking about engagement. And, and I uh, in the white paper, you pretty much say, Getting into elite schools doesn't matter. Engagement does. So what? So tell us the ways that students can become engaged. Yeah. So um, you know we've talked a little bit already about you know some of the things that I think are are that we think of as being engagement and you know things like spending time studying and um, spending time engaged in your learning and engaging in the campus community and engaged in um, you know civic engagement outside of the outside of the school as well is an important thing you know you can you can get involved in your broader community um, being you know having finding mentorships finding those kinds of um, extracurriculars that can go past one semester um, so all those things we talked about we, we don't like to use those as a checklist though because I think one of the um, I mean like Gallup has this list of six things that in in their study um, which they kind of talk about as being these correlations with long-term outcomes um, but I don't like to think of it as a checklist because I think that kind of creates the same kind of mentality that we often see with, um, you know, sometimes with, with kids who are kind of in this doing school mentality and in high schools where they, you know, they want to just go through and check off all of the boxes. And it really should be engagement is really when you are authentically into what you're doing. So it's not that you need to say like, oh, I need to go find my extracurricular that goes multi-semester. Um, <laughs> it's more that you need to kind of like, 
just do the things that you really enjoy and have things that have things that you really enjoy and kind of know yourself a little bit and go and engage in those things. And, you know, like, don't just find a professor because you're like, Oh, I need to find a professor to be my mentor. It's like, go just go to talk, knock on the doors of professors who, you know, who had really interesting classes, who you really liked what they were doing and liked what they were saying and create those, you know, you want to create those things organically. I think if you try to force that engagement and see it as a checklist, then it's actually not engagement. It's, it's more of, you know, it's more of that kind of mercenary mentality. Um, so I think that that's a really important point about engagement is you want to find, um, find ways for that to be authentic and, and no. kind of intrinsic. Yeah, not an assignment that you're just trying to check the box. Exactly. And also, we should point out, you, you touched on the social aspect, but um, in the white paper, uh, or maybe it was the Gallup study, um, they talked about the Greek system. They talked about going to a school with Division One athletics. You know, my husband mm-hmm. went to University of Wisconsin, and wherever we go, he's got quote, friends, because there's always a badger in the bar, right? You know, <laughs> and I think the same thing is true with U of I. I think yep. the same thing, my, my uh, yep. uh, family members, Michigan State, you know, I, I can walk through go airports. <laughs> go white. Yes. So <laughs> that that's all part of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, and it's something that um, does vary from student to student and family to family. And this is part of what we, you know, we don't want to be overly prescriptive in the white paper because it is so different for different people. Like what matters to you in a college might be very different from what matters to someone else. And I think one of the things that often um, strikes me when I hear, uh, you know, teenagers talking about their interest in college is that, um, and this is not this is not meant as a criticism. This is just a recognition of the way our culture has kind of framed this whole conversation. Is you'll hear a student say like, "Yeah, I'm really I'm looking at um, you know Harvard and Dartmouth and Williams and the University of Michigan," and you're like, "Those four schools have almost nothing in common with each other. Right. Like they're all the one thing that they have in common is that they're all elite, you know, selective at near the top of the various rankings kind of schools, but." The, the cultures of all four of those schools are vastly different. The geography is different. The you know, the what you kind of, what you have available in terms of Greek systems or what you have available in terms of athletics is different. I mean, Michigan and Williams, you couldn't get more different than that. Right. Um, you know, like one is a small liberal arts college, kind of in the mountains, and the other one is one of the biggest you know state schools in the country. Mm-hmm. So like you kind of get this. It opens up the door to asking this question of like, well, what really is important to you? Because we do know that where you go doesn't matter nearly as much as what you do in college. And that's part of why, you know, we don't think of fit as being the fit or the right fit. Um, I think that there are literally dozens of fits for every student um, that could be a very good fit. And, you know, the kinds of questions you should be asking are, you know, about what kind of, you know, community you want to be in and whether or not, like, many students don't know. You know, they might say, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm only 18. I don't know what kind of community I want to be in. Um, but that itself can also be a kind of an, I, I think that doesn't have to be scary. That can be a very open door of like, well, you're free to kind of try it out then. You're free to try to find a place that feels like a good fit for you. Sure. Awesome. Thank you, Paul Franz, uh, research associate and school coach at Challenge Success. And we'll link to your site on our podcast page. Um, a ton of information. I'm going to have to probably listen to this again myself. <laughs> we uh, have 13 year olds. So we're, we're coming up on this t- time oh, period yeah. here. Yeah. Right yeah. around the corner. Yeah. Oh my God. Uh, no. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Paul. And, um, it looks like your phone number is in Honolulu. So I just want to say enjoy your day. <laughs> I, I live in the Bay Area now, though. Actually, split time between the Bay Area and um, Wisconsin. Oh, so. there you go. Well, <laughs> next time you're in the Midwest, give us a call. All right. Will do. Sounds All right. good. Thanks, Thank Paul. you so much, Paul. Hey, thank you so much. So apparently we need to rethink the ridiculous pressures we're putting on our kids when it comes to college. Uh, something you already knew. Um, yeah. So we, we do want them to have choices. 
but maybe fancy pants schools aren't the goal. Uh, we need to find the schools that fit our kids. Yeah, and not do ridiculously stupid things like, <laughs> like saying my kid is going to be on crew or whatever. What are some of the other stories? Photoshopping someone's head onto someone else's body to make the kid look like an athlete. That's that's not putting the kid first in those stories. Like, because if you think about it, with the with that one with a daughter, girls, the, the yeah. influencer yeah. who's like off on boats, and she she could care less about being in college. So clearly, that was driven by somebody else and not her. And she subsequently lost all of her endorsements on YouTube, so she's now without oh, is that true? The income. Yeah. So oh, yeah, bummer. Yeah. So just uh, we got to think about what's good for the kids, and um, and also. Let's listen to them and see what they want, right? Yeah. And Paul said there could be like a dozen different schools that would be perfect for them. The perfect fit. That's really reassuring. Yeah. That's great. Well, it's not too long away from now. We'd love to hear from you if you're going through the college admissions process right now. um, Does this make you feel a little better? I don't know. Maybe it does. (laughs) Uh, Do you have any stories to share? If so, we want to hear from you. Check out our Facebook page. Give us a call at 331-704-0046, or you can email us at apparentlypodcast at gmail.com. This is the WGN Plus Podcast. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Thanks for listening to Apparently. We make it look easy. We make it look good. When everybody sees it, they stop and take a look.